directly to Richard Imerson, suggesting another two-parter about a returning starship whose crew discovered that the Earth has disappeared. A lot of doubts crept in after I'd posted that three-paragraph letter. I mean, maybe I should have observed protocol and had a quiet word with the BBC script unit first before placing my head on the block by offering the head of radio drama a half-baked idea. I'd put a foot wrong, there was nothing for it but to wait for the axe to fall. And it fell with a phone call from Richard Imerson's secretary asking if I could call in to see her boss whenever was convenient. Now when the head of radio drama wants to see you whenever is convenient, that means now. I was shown into his office the next day, the first time I'd ever been in there. Now, there were stories about Richard Imerson eating writers for breakfast, lunch and tea, but I'd always dismissed him as mischievous rumour-mongering. So I wasn't in the least bit nervous at the prospect of this meeting, other than a mild touch of abject, quivering terror. In fact, he was charming, all bon and me, a big, friendly man, very much as I knew him from his brief visits to studios during rehearsals. Ah, James, he boomed. This letter of yours, Earth Search, I've been discussing it with Monica Sims. Now, his mention of Radio 4's chief meant that some really long knives were out for me and that I was top of the lunch menu. Then Richard Imerson's voice cut through my mounting panic. Could you write Earth Search as a ten-part serial, James? Thirty minutes each episode? He had to repeat the question, and he added, tapping my three-paragraph letter, Do you think there's enough story here for five hours? Now, I confess to having floated a few porkies in my career, but until then they've all been mere plywood pram dinghies for sailing close to the wind, but the one I uttered next was a triple-screwed Titanic of all porkies. Absolutely no trouble at all, Mr. Imerson, I breezed. Splendid, he boomed. I need to have a word with Monica Sims, but I think you can say you've got a commission. An hour later, I was on the train home in such a dazed state that I have no recollection of how I found Waterloo Station. I mean, ten episodes, five hours of broadcasting. Enough of the initial shock had worn off by the time the train had reached Guildford me to start jotting down some thumbnail outlines. Now, I know this is a cliche, but I wrote them on the back of an envelope, a BBC A4 envelope, which I've still got. Before getting down to serious writing, I had to do some very hard thinking. I decided on the same approach that Charles Chilton had used for his classic Journey into Space radio serial, which I had listened to enthralled as a kid. A small crew, so that I wouldn't get too confused, never mind the audience, and a single strand plot throughout for the same reasons. Fairly self-contained episodes and a real cliffhanger at the end of each one. OK, so it was old-fashioned storytelling, but why not? People haven't really changed since Paleolithic times, when tribes celebrating mammoth kills gathered round their campfires and listened to their storytellers. The need to be told a good story is as basic as the need for sex. Audiences today are exactly the same as those early people, but probably not so hairy, and they have smaller Sunday roasts. After the scripts were written and delivered, Glyn Dearman called me to say that he would be producing them. Now, although a gifted radio producer, I have to be honest now and say that I wasn't exactly dancing in the street at the news. A few weeks before, Glyn had given me a bad fright when he had directed a Saturday night theatre I'd written with a somewhat clumsy title, The Long Lonely Voyage of U395. During recording, Glyn cut and cut that play, sometimes dumping entire scenes, saying, It needs pace, James, it needs pace. Well, when finished, its running time was about 72 minutes, 18 minutes under the contracted 90 minutes. I thought there'd be a terrible row with nuclear-tipped memos flying back and forth, mostly aimed at me, demands from BBC's copyright department for a refund, etc. 
In retrospect, I realised that Glyn had a great deal of editorial courage to place the story and the listeners above the need to fit a slot. He was right about the cuts. The play certainly had pace, but you can imagine my mixed feelings when I heard that he was to produce Earthsearch. Those scripts would have to be right. The rewrites, as a result of dealing with Glyn's long list of queries and suggestions, ensured that they were right. His ability to spot even the smallest hole in a plot or a continuity hiccup was phenomenal. Nothing escaped his eye. Above all, he was a gifted story man, able to stand back from the scripts and view them with a detached eye and was always bubbling over with suggestions for improvements. And such was his careful planning, it was possible for the serial to be rehearsed and recorded in ten days. Now that's a rate of one episode per day, which is normal for the production of straightforward drama. It was therefore quite an accomplishment when you consider that every scene required a good deal of setting up and testing. As a former actor, Glynn knew and understood the needs of his cast. His gentle but persistent pushing to get the best from them was always accompanied by his acerbic sense of humour. Glyn Dearman's contribution to the success of Earth Search was immeasurable. Once the ten episodes were finished, in the can, I had a suspicion that the BBC weren't quite sure what to do with it. It was eventually transmitted in a late Tuesday evening slot at 10.30. A graveyard slot, I thought, well that was it, that it would be transmitted and forgotten. But an unusual thing happened. Listeners' letters started trickling into the BBC. Earthsearch's ten-week run gave it a chance to build up a following, a following with a surprisingly high percentage of younger listeners who had been packed off to bed and had come across Lloyd Silverthorne's weird Earthsearch noises when tuning around. Emboldened by a favourable audience reaction, Radio 4 started a repeat run of Earthsearch at the plum time of midday on a Sunday, but had to shift an episode to a different time to make room for their coverage of the Pope's visit to England. In Glyn Dearman's words, all hell broke loose. Readers' letters appeared in the Radio Times protesting about the lost episode. And in the end, Radio 4 repeated the repeat, and I collected two repeat fees, plus a commission to write a second series. Glyn Dearman was keen to ensure that the join between the two series was seamless, and I wanted to inject a little more humour into the second series. So some careful script editing was called for. Search, a ten-part adventure serial in time and space by James Follett. Part one, Planetfall. Fellow crewmen and women of the Starship Challenger, I have insisted on calling everyone together because we have reached an important stage in the Challenger's Earth Search mission. For 75 years, we have toured the galaxy at speeds approaching that of light in search of other Earths for colonization. When our parents set out on this mission, they hoped that they would discover one Earth-type planet for each 10 years' ship time of the mission. That did not happen. Therefore, we, the Challenger's second-generation crew, have continued the work of our parents. And now, during the past six months, the first four babies of the third generation have been born to us. 
The parents of Telson, Shana, Astra, and Dar have petitioned me, saying that they do not wish for their children to grow up as we have, without knowing about our home, Earth, never to breathe its air, walk under its blue skies, and feel its grass beneath their feet. Ladies and gentlemen, I agree with them. As commander of the Challenger, I have acceded to their petition. denied our home, Earth. But I do not believe that we have the right to pass on that denial to a third generation. Yeah, right, 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 right. Nor do I believe that it is possible for the Challenger to improve on the success of its mission. Yeah, yeah. Fellow crewmen, we will complete this exploration phase before turning onto a course for our own star cluster. <laughs> then we will go into suspended animation the Starship Challenger is going home. Stop it! Stop it! Why was it necessary for us to see that angel too? The four of you have reached the age of 25, Shana. Angel One and I felt the time was right for you to see how your parents perished. That was Commander Sinclair speaking? Yes, Telson. I always wondered what he looked like. It was horrible. Horrible. We are very sorry it happened, Astra. Why did it happen? You're supposed to be the crew's guardian angels. Why did you let it happen? The great meteoroid.